Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Season 8 of Game of Thrones premiered on Sunday, and you can deep dive with the Ringer staff as we make our way through the final episodes of the series. On the podcast side, listen to Binge Mode Game of Thrones with Mallory Rubin and Jason Concepcion, The Watch with Chris Ryan and Andy Greenwald, and a pre-capable series on the Recapables feed where we'll make predictions on episodes to come. In addition to our Sunday night Twitter after show called Talk the Thrones, we'll be releasing tons of videos over the course of the series. So make sure to check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash the ringer. And for even more Game of Thrones coverage, head over to theringer.com. David, last week Bernie Sanders did a town hall on Fox News, drawing good reviews even from his lefty fans. What I want to know is... What other pilgrim in an unholy land moments would you like to see on TV? Oh man, oh man! I'm not sure what I think about Bernie going on Fox, but I, but I, now I kind of wish just everybody would go on Fox. It's such as like a bizarre. Uh, it was it, it was just just incredible television. Um, first of all, we should say uh, in-house uh, shout out to uh, our coworker Roger Sherman who stared down the challenge from Rich Eisen's uh, Tom oh, Foolery yeah. and went right on his show and uh, and, and, and made made uh, friends with him. Um, yeah, I have no idea. I mean, like, you try to make jokes and it, they all either go to Trump or, you know, I'm, I'm trying to leave, like, various Barstool or PMT references out of here. But listen, <laughs> I think that the answer is... You know, there's a lot of places you could see Trump. It isn't just, like, the final answer right now, just, like just Trump having to sit on the stage for a Comedy Central roast in 2019 and just seeing how badly that whole thing would go? Wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't that just be amazing? Oh, a whole nother level of bad than the usual Comedy Central roast? <laughs> yeah. I couldn't help when hearing about the Bernie thing of just thinking that there are two types of Democrats who do well on Fox News. There are former Hillary advisors who do well because they're fake Democrats. Yeah. And then there are people like Bernie Sanders who are in total don't give a fuck mode. So essentially when the Fox host challenges them and says, well, it sounds like you're for, you know, radical redistribution of wealth. They say, yes, that's exactly right. Uh, (laughs) I'm also for radical ideas about changing government, about mandatory safe spaces at every 7-Eleven in America. It's just like they've sort of figured out how to go in because their strategy is to just say, yes, whatever nightmare fantasy you've concocted about me is actually probably mostly true. Yeah. And at least on the ideological level, and I'm happy to own the ideas. And then the sort of Fox host is sort of flummoxed. Uh, yeah, I think that the, the Fox thing, I mean, th- that kind of goes for all cable news, but but you're right. I mean, I think that it's really interesting. I wouldn't mind seeing like Tucker Carlson and Rachel, Rachel Maddow doing a home and away, you know, just to like, just to see, see how that would shake out. <laughs> we are the Francis Ford Coppola hosting SNL of media podcasts. This is the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. The Press Box is the media podcast. We are not allowed to use the headline, Tiger Roars. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker of The Ringer here. David in Brooklyn. Brian in London, where I'm making my temporary residence for the next month and change. How are you, David? I'm doing great, man. I'm doing great. My temporary residence is uh, the same as my usual residence. (laughs) Three topics to discuss today. First, some media notes from Tiger Woods' shocking victory at the Masters. Should we... And how should we root for Tiger? Second, we talk about last week's arrest of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, a threat to journalism or just a threat to Julian Assange. And finally, here on the Press Box, we try something a little different. We have an interview with author Ron Rappaport, who has a new book out about Ernie Banks, about the art of writing a sports biography, plus the notebook dump and the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But David, the best way to explain just how universally big Tiger Woods winning the Masters was is that every British newspaper I saw yesterday from the Guardian to the Sun had Tiger on page one. And I guess the place I want to start with this is, you know, I feel in the Twitter era, we have a lot of fake everybody's watching this moments, Uh, you know, kind of like when a bunch of our colleagues are all watching a Philadelphia 76ers regular season game. And it seems like everybody on Twitter is watching, but really it's like six people. This was one of the, to me, other than, you know, Super Bowl Oscars or the obvious stuff was one of the few where everybody was sort of locked in. And also crucially, I think everybody was not only making jokes, they were making plenty of jokes, 
but they were sort of having, or at least pretending to have an emotional reaction to Mm. what they were watching. Do you agree? Yes. I mean, I I think for me, part of the surprise was the depth and, uh, and honesty and reality of the emotional reaction, because I, 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 uh, a lot of times in sports, obviously, we're, uh, we, we, at least in sports journalism, we focus more on the sort of uh, charade of emotional response as opposed to, as opposed to the actual emo- emotional response. And Tiger's story over the past <laughs> decade has been so, you know, varied and expansive that, that it's, that I didn't, I think I, I didn't really, I, I didn't really register how much uh, that people had an emotional connection to him anymore. You know, I mean, I, I, I thought it was just more of a sort of more, more of a just sort of, uh, you know, totem to, to sports eras past or any, or something like that. And that, but, but yeah, the emotional response was real. And also to, to take a more sort of, you know, wry angle on the whole thing. We all have this experience where we watch, where, where something happens and you're talking about experiencing it in real time on Twitter. How many times in, over the course of a sports year do you have, you know, the George Costanza style tweet that occurs to you 20 minutes after the fact and it's just like, and you just like <laughs> back pocket it forever? If you ever had, if you had ever prepped a Tiger Woods tweet that didn't end up being relevant or that you missed the, you missed the moment for, this Masters was your chance to get it back out there into circulation, right? Like every <laughs> every Tiger Woods joke, pun, headline, uh, you know, every moment that didn't quite come to fruition, it finally all happened at the Masters, and we all were there to experience it in social media style together. I agree, and I'd also add just old media because this, to me, was the comeback of the overused Tiger headlines that I hadn't seen since the early aughts. Mm-hmm. Um, on Twitter, Jeremy Raponich predicted the comeback of Tiger Roars, and in fact, it was everywhere. Um, also, from the London Times, one I hadn't really noticed for about uh, you know fifteen plus years now, which was Tiger Burning Bright. You know, if you <laughs> yes. quote, uh, if yes. you can quote William Blake in a sports headline, you have to do it. Remember when that was big? And that was just, that was like the. It was also like a Tiger Burning Dim period when he would uh, when he would fall on hard times. <laughs> yes. A uh, couple of things that ended yesterday, one or Sunday, one was um, the death of the, I hope, of the CBS executives tweet. Now, you know, this is one of my bugaboos on Twitter, right? When people are like, CBS executives must be so happy right now. And these are people <laughs> who aren't sports media critics. They couldn't even name a single CBS sports executive. They've just been, they've been taught and brainwashed so much by sports media critics that they think that's what you're supposed to do instead of just enjoying a big sporting event for its own. Yes. Well, guess who, guess who came in on the CBS executives front? Donald Trump, <laughs> who tweeted going into the final round, quote, great playing by at Tiger Woods at the masters. And by the way, he, he wrote, you know, at ampersand, the masters. And then in parentheses wrote at the, just in case any of his uh, followers didn't understand what that meant. Uh, and then he writes ratings, gold, good luck to all. So, um, Donald Trump was thinking of the ratings rather than thinking of the special sports moment. That should, that should be shaming for everyone on Twitter. Also, I'd <laughs> like to say rest in power, to the control plus V talk radio segment, Tiger will win again or Tiger will never win again. It's now over. <laughs> you, can, you can you have to have a different take. <laughs> why why did anyone agree? Anyone but someone who is super plugged into golf and just knows something biomechanically about Tiger, why did anyone agree to to participate in one of those debates? Ever. What, what, what was the point? But <laughs> other than getting you through the day. What possibly could be the point of Tiger will will never win again? What's what 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 do you win if you if you're correct? No, I mean I think just the entire Tiger Woods story had become so dire in so many different directions over the years that you just had to go to the full extreme whenever you were debating him, or it all seemed just sort of beside the point. Um, uh, Russillo and Simmons had a great conversation about this on Bill's podcast um, on yeah. Sunday, I guess. And, and I mean, I just encourage everyone to listen to it just for the conversation. I mean, if nothing else, for the conversation about Rosillo, about Rosillo made the point that this might be the, the one unziggable sports moment in, in recent memory where all of these people who are doing talk radio and TV are trying to zig where everyone else is zagging. And uh, this and, and Tiger Woods put together maybe the one the one sports moment that we could possibly think of where. You, there is just not there. There is not an uh, you know a dissenting point of view, or there's not a, there's not an arch point of view on this one. It's just 
Tiger Woods won. Um, let's all take a moment to appreciate it. I want to dig deeper into the, how people reacted to it because I think it's sort of fascinating. And it actually surprised me because I think there's there's a couple of things I expected. One is that this is one of those moments in sports where sports writers remember that their job is actually really exciting mm-hmm. and that you know that things will happen that aren't just go-to golf tournament, someone's wins golf tournament, you write story. And I saw a couple of those columns. This reminds you of how exciting sports is. Okay, got that one. Uh, you have your conventional or semi-conventional redemption neg- narrative. Tiger was on top of the world. Tiger was not on top of the world and seemingly doomed. And then Tiger wins again. Okay, that that I expected. There was some different stuff, though. I, I saw at least one, and I think more sports writers, uh, relating to Tiger Woods as a divorced dad. You remember that scene mm-hmm. at the end of the round where he he hugs his kids and he's he's elated and captured it for the TV cameras. And and a couple of people were saying on Twitter, you know, I've fucked up in my life and I want my kids to still love me, however mm-hmm. imperfect I am. And that's the moment they latched on to when Tiger is hugging his kids. I thought that was fascinating. I I I, I would never have thought of that. Uh, and it's not because I'm perfect either. Um but it's sort of like that was the that was the part of Tiger. And it's like it's it's funny because he seems to me like such a distant figure and he always has. And that was such a kind of a personal thing to latch on to mm. that I thought that was really, really interesting. Yeah, no, I think we can all relate to that and we can all relate to the emotion of the moment. And I think that that's what that's part of what I think you're right. The distance is a real thing as human as some of as a lot of his his story, the, you know, the tragedy of his story has been. He's always seemed, you know, I mean, for for uh, for someone who has been a part of our lives for so long, th- there did seem to, I mean, it, it it was sort of easier to, ma- it was sort of easy to make jokes about him. Like, you know, I mean, I guess the same thing could be said about any other, you know, Hollywood celebrity, someone, anyone of his stature that that he does seem so distant that, it, you know, you don't feel, you, you know, you you, it, you don't feel as bad when you're, when you're like, you know, tossing bombs his way because he's because he does seem distant but in that moment um you know in some ways that that was the great victory right the sort of like the 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 triumph of humanity in that moment and that that was that was almost bigger than the sports triumph but i think that to go back to what you were saying before part of what made part of what made this a great moment for sports journalism and part of what I think contributed to a lot of the way that we talked about him, the, the, the way that, that people talked about him over the past decade, was there is this very, there is this narrative, you know, there is this narrative arc that there's certain expectations, especially someone with, you know, of Tiger's level and, and, and with the amount of attention that we've given him over the years and that he's earned over the, over the years is part of what really drove everything was this angst of the incomplete sports narrative. And I know this is sort of like too meta a, ta- a take, uh, maybe for this for this moment, but but this was you know he, there was there was the 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 giant rise at the beginning of his career his complete domination of the sport for such a period of time then the com- then him coming crashing down and him he resumed his career and he resumed some level of success but the idea that it wouldn't that it, like I said it's the angst that he wouldn't ever regain the glory that he did in fact regain this weekend. I think just it was it was it's really hard as a sports writer to fo- to to put that into concise and understandable terms because we're used to these narratives and and what he was able to do this weekend was really put a capstone on the story of his career and of his life. That's exactly right. And I think you saw CBS trying to do that when they showed footage from 97 with him hugging Earl after he wins the Masters and then running that next to him hugging his kids on Sunday afternoon. And, Mm -hmm. you know, not only did you have the kind of full circleness, now we don't have an, uh, an athlete cut short in his prime, but we also have, you know, Tiger was the son hugging his father. And now Tiger is the father. Tiger is the Tiger is a man. (laughs) You know, that was, I mean, to me, that was the not so subliminal message at that moment. Look at look at how he's grown up, whether he wants to, or has, has done so by his, you know, has fought, fought at every step of the way or not. Um, you know, now he's this dad balding. Once he takes his cap off, you can see how much hair he's lost. And, mm-hmm. um, and that I wasn't, by the way, I was totally, I, I, um, I saw people as diverse as Jim Nance and Clay Travis, uh, talk about tearing up when they watched him hug mm-hmm. his kids. 
I am a father. I watched the last hole with my six-year-old son after kicking him out for the previous 17 holes because he was too loud and I couldn't <laughs> concentrate. Just this is actual parenting kids. This is the unromantic kind. Um, I, I, w- I was not touched by that. And I don't and I don't and I'm not about to say that isn't moral superior in the moral superiority sense of the term at all. I just wasn't. I just was it was to me, it was what all the golfers do when they when they win a tournament as they hug their loved ones. And um I think it kind of goes to this thing that I saw Sarah Spain of ESPN tweeting about, which is winning a golf tournament doesn't mean that everything Tiger did gets washed away. Um, and, and what's funny is I have a complicated feeling about that because when Tiger had his um, serial philandering now many, many years ago, I was one of those people who said, this is pretty gross behavior, but we should probably put this in the context of what exactly this is, <laughs> you know, versus mm-hmm. is, this is not Tiger didn't kill anybody. This is awful. This is Tiger seems like a pretty disgusting person in his marriage, but there's probably, this should probably be thought of, uh, you know, again, among a host of sins and not as, as, you know, as the worst possible thing in the world. But at the same time, I agree with Sarah Spain because I was like, him winning the him winning and the way he conducted his life aren't on the same scoreboard or they shouldn't be. But in sports, they always wind up on the same scoreboard. It's like Mm -hmm. when the Patriots, you know, have deflate gate and then win the Super Bowl. That means deflate gate didn't count. (laughs) What did (laughs) it's the same. It doesn't mean it didn't happen, but yeah, there is this kind of sports narrative thing where you, um, you try to smash those things together. Yeah, and I think that's really hard. I mean, I, that's that's part of the difficulty of of the job and 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 the way that we talk about these things, and and that should never go away. I frankly was surprised by the degree to which, um, you know, that part of his life was sort of set aside, and and I think that, it, and I'm not sure that it shouldn't be, but I think I was just surprised as as you know, an outsider looking in, um, that I, I was sort of surprised that 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 you know we as a culture were ready to ignore that just for the sake of the triumphant moment um i that's not what i would have expected but and, and i and i but but i do recognize the difficulty both as a you know as a sports writer um and as a human being in sort of balancing those two things at the same time yeah to go back to your point about the hugging the kids um I mean, I thought I, I, I was, you know, I, I was caught up in it. I, I had a tear in my eye. Of course, I'm a new father and, and uh, you know, have a tear in yeah, my eye. You, about what 70- do you know? Yeah, about, about 75% of the time, you know, I mean, I, I get a tear in my eye when like a sandwich is delivered to me at a restaurant these days. But um, <laughs> but but I, but I do think that that there is, I mean, that when you say that's what all the golfers do when they win, um. Well, I mean, that just goes to show that you watch golf, right? And I think that what that what you know, Tiger's the story of Tiger Woods um, said again, setting aside the tragedy or even taking into account is that he transcended golf. That we, you know, he obviously had some, you know, his his personal demons to use the abstract to use the abstraction um, were extreme. But you know, we don't we 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 were paying attention to his because he's Tiger Woods, not because you know, not not that we would have we wouldn't have been paying attention to any other golfer to that degree, right? And no, the same and the same thing with his triumphs in his career and leading up into Saturday, he transcends the sport, right? And I think that that one of the most interesting things is to kind of realize how old he actually is at this point, you know, to realize that he's yeah. he he's up there. You know, the, the story of his that's meta narrative has dragged has stretched out for so long. That you sort of forget that, like, he would be in his twilight regardless, you know, regardless of all the human the human failures and regardless of all the injuries mm-hmm. and everything else. And that I think more than anything speaks to how he overshadows the sport. That we're waiting for that that we're more that we as a culture are much more interested in the narrative of Tiger Woods um, than of you know the actual narrative of what's happening in the sport of professional golf. One of the, I think maybe my favorite thing about the whole day on Sunday was Tiger wins a Masters. He makes the journey to Butler Cabin, as all the champions do. And -hmm. then this really funny thing happens where Jim Nance is interviewing Tiger. And Jim Nance is, is a true believer in this, in golf, in fathers and sons, in these kinds of stories. And Jim Nance seemed more emotional about Tiger Woods winning than Tiger Woods did and seemed Mm -hmm. in a way sort of flummoxed that Tiger wasn't more openly emotional about his victory. And 
and and it was just such a it was just such an amazing moment to me because I, I and I don't fault Nance for it because I know exactly what he was thinking, which is, oh my gosh, you know, this is incredible. And everybody at home is sort of wrung out. And I think he was probably a pretty good stand-in for how everyone at home was feeling. And then you get on Tiger and he is kind of, you know, I think you'd you'd say a slightly less chilly Tiger Woods than he normally is. But he was very recognizably tiger in, in those interviews. Yeah. And, um, and that was so funny. It was just like, it was just almost like, gosh, Oh, you know, if you're ever gonna let your guard down and feed, uh, those in the sports media who just want to love you and just want to give you and, and emote along with you, this is the moment. Uh, he didn't really do it. It was very funny to watch. No, and I think that that goes back to the hug and 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 the the way that it echoed the first hug because I don't want to call it a tragedy, but but you know what's lost and I think in in a lot of what's happened in Tiger's personal life, you know, since then is that like the original narrative was this sort of oddity of the way that he was raised by his father and sort of built to be a golf robot, right? And and that still is is very much who Tiger Woods is, right? And and a lot of a lot of the questions that people have. You know, why is he playing if he's not 100%? Does he? I mean, I think it, it kind of goes back to the, the, the overarching question is, why is Tiger not as aware of his meta narrative as the rest of us are, right? I mean, why, why, is, why is he not? <laughs> yes. Why is he not? And, and, that, and that answers so many questions about him, right? I mean, over, over, the, I mean, over his entire career. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, it, 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 I think that was the, that was the moment where um, that was as clear as any other time, right? I mean, that, he, that he's... he's uh, he is so invested in himself as a golfer and in the sport of golf that he's sort of blind to everything else that we care about as sports writers and sports fans. All right, David, now it's time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. (laughs) Did you see the updates, David, in the college admissions scandal last week? Uh, News was that Felicity Huffman uh, is planning to plead guilty, but Lori Laughlin had other ideas. According to E! News, Laughlin thought the DA was bluffing, so she rejected their first plea deal and now faces additional charges of conspiracy to commit fraud, etc. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, Lori Laughlin thought the district attorney had a pair of fives, but he really had <laughs> a full house. Thanks to our friends Paul uh, Boston and Ken Barrett for that one. I know, I know. Some good stuff from last Monday. In the NCAA tournament, where the Virginia Cavaliers beat Texas Tech to win the men's college basketball title, it was an overworked Twitter joke to say, "Who said the Cavaliers can't win a title without LeBron?" Thanks to <laughs> no. T. Anderson for that one. Um, last week, David, we had another boffo reputation obliterating interview from the New Yorker's Isaac Chotner. Uh, <laughs> he got Brett Easton Ellis. <laughs> to add to his many trophies on the wall. It was an overworked Twitter joke to imagine how Chotner would get you in an interview. So uh, Barry Pacheski tweets, Isaac Chotner somehow getting me to admit in an interview that I killed Franz Ferdinand. And I saw the writer, John Lingen tweeted this, Chotner, colon, you've written a book about country music, me, colon. I run a snowball stand to launder money from my cockfighting habit. I have a secret family in Tulsa. Every word I've ever written is plagiarized. I somehow feel compelled right now to say it aloud that I support Trump. Um, so good stuff, Isaac Chotner. Uh, big, yeah, big news from the world of billions and billions of stars. On Wednesday, astronomers announced they had captured an image of a black hole. A remarkable moment for scientists. It was an overworked Twitter joke to say, this is the image of a black hole and post something like, a photo of Mitch McConnell, a photo of Trump's mouth, uh, the Lakers logo, and finally a screen grab of the words www.twitter.com. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And lastly, David, this, this, this is one of the overworked all-timers. It's from a tweet from Jezebel, and I'm sure you saw it. Quote, Kristen Cavallari says Jay Cutler unclogged her milk ducks oh by, God. quote, sucking harder than he's ever sucked. It was an overworked Twitter joke to say, actually, he sucked harder in Denver, Chicago, and Miami. So uh, many, many people set that in, but the first was Michael Kester. Thank you, Michael. If you, if clogged milk ducks made you think of Jay Cutler throwing a duck, congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. Yeah. All right, David, before we move on to Julian Assange, let's take a quick break. It can be a little frustrating, especially if you're in, in a hurry or running late, to find yourself at a railway crossing waiting for a train. 
And if the signals are going and the train's not even there yet, you can feel a little bit tempted to try and sneak across the tracks. Well, don't ever. Trains are often going a lot faster than you expect them to be, and they can't stop. Even if the engineer hits the brakes right away, it can take a train over a mile to stop. By that time, what used to be your car is just a crushed hunk of metal, and what used to be you is, well, let's not think about that. The point is, you can't know how quickly a train will arrive. The train can't stop even if it sees you, and the result is disaster. If the signals are on, the train is on the way, and you just need to remember one thing. Stop, because trains can't. Topic number two. Julian Assange. So last week, the WikiLeaks founder was ejected from the Ecuadorian consulate here in London and arrested. Former Guardian editor Alan Rusbridger noted that Assange has a giant gray beard and looked like a befuddled Old Testament prophet. Um, by the way, it was yet another overworked Twitter show to compare him to Bill Murray or David Letterman. Thanks to Don <laughs> Steele for that one. couple notes uh, before we get to the press freedom portion of the conversation. The Washington Post notes that he had uh, the embassy where he'd been staying since 2012 had banned most of Assange's visitors and he hadn't been able to see a doctor to treat his, quote, extreme shoulder and tooth pain. So he's going to get to see the doctors in prison. Um, there's also a lot of stuff about the fate of his cat. Did you see this? Which was named yeah. embassy cat who has a Twitter mm-hmm. account and wears a tie. Um, Ecuadorian President Lenin Moreno explained that Assange treated his host disrespectfully and uh, neglected to provide for the well-being, food, and hygiene, and proper care of his pet. Um, and then WikiLeaks tweeted that we can, quote, we can confirm that Assange's cat is safe. Assange asked his lawyers to rescue him from the embassy threats in mid-October. They will be reunited in freedom. Hashtag free Assange. Hashtag no extradition. So the cat and the uh, muckraker have come, will, will at some later date come back together. Okay, the serious part. Mm-hmm. We are now set up for a big battle about his possible extradition to the United States and failing that extradition to Sweden, uh, where a rape case against him was suspended a couple of years back. Um, it's interesting. I, I, I thought one sort of smart thought about this was from Jack Schaefer and Politico who talked about whatever happens from here, Assange is going to get this giant platform. Uh, first in the extradition case to argue that it's a big setup. And then as Schaefer says, if he loses that round and the case comes back to the United States, he might well get the government to serve him up by law, a kind of massive document hall he loves, meaning by uh, discovery. Mm-hmm. So there's that. We are There's a 1,000% chance this will make Julian Assange just the kind of free press martyr he clearly craves to be. Correct. Yeah, I think that I mean, I think that the that, you know, the interesting question. Well, I mean, I think there's a lot there's a lot of interesting questions here. Seeing him dragged out. I mean, as soon as the story broke, I was having a conversation with someone here in the office and I was like, man, if I spent seven years trapped inside, not I mean, trapped, whatever, inside of an embassy, you would think that I would just be insane. Right. I mean, there's like regardless of how well I'd been taken care of or whatever. I mean, that's it's there's a point where it's not significantly different than being in prison. And that's, and that's, you know, and that is literally maddening for many people. And, uh, you know, his, his general look and I mean, you know, everything, the way that he looked when he was being dragged out, didn't, didn't dispute that, you know, just total conjecture of mine. Um, I think, so, so I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued to see how he presents when he's, um, when, when this platform is, is afforded him. Right. I mean, he's, he's, um, I mean, I, I, he he has been obviously more than just the fa- face of WikiLeaks. He is WikiLeaks, and and I think that that you know obviously public perception of him, um, at least in many quarters, has 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 evolved a lot over the years. Um, and I think part of that is the question of whether uh, or, or to what degree you know, he's the kind of the spokesman for WikiLeaks, or whether he is WikiLeaks, like I said before, and how much it's a it's a you know. Is 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 WikiLeaks a a cult of personality? Is it is it you know a vanity operation? You know what 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 are what are we dealing with here? And and um, and yeah, I mean it, it. We'll see, I guess. And we'll and and there's obviously a much bigger question about about and all that. I guess all that is separate from the question of of free press, right? For sure. And and that's the second part of this is that the government very carefully charged him 
with what is essentially a computer crime rather Mm -hmm. than espionage. So the first kind of, I think, knee-jerk reaction is, well, they're not, they're, they're sort of going out of their way, at least at this date, to sort of not make this into something that could then be applied to any journalist who publishes information from class leaked classified files. Okay. I was persuaded though, by Michelle Goldberg's column in the New York times, where she talks about some of the things the indictment says that apply to all or could apply to many, many investigative journalists, things that they either do or walk right up to the line. She says the indictment says it was part of a conspiracy that Assange and Chelsea Manning took measures to conceal Manning as a source of the disclosure of classified records to WikiLeaks, right? That that's something all investigative journalists do is try to conceal mm-hmm. their source. It's part of the conspiracy that Assange encouraged Manning to provide information and records. Well, this is something journalists either do with their sources or right walk right up to that line. Yeah. It's part of a conspiracy that Assange and Manning used a special folder on a cloud Dropbox of WikiLeaks. Of course, everybody Goldberg notes has secure drop at this late date. So what, what she says, and again, I find this persuasive is that the government isn't trying to turn, isn't trying to paint with a broad brush, but they are walking right up to it and they're using an indictment to kind of, you know, cast a shadow over a lot of regular investigative techniques. And that to me is worrying enough on its face. That's a, that's reason enough to be worried. Whatever you think about Julian Assange, whatever you think about this case, that's the thing that's you're going to go, uh Oh, because it, it's again, it's not, they're not charging him with that as a crime, but as soon as you put that stuff in the indictment, you've clearly got, you know, a government in this case, an administration that thinks of that stuff as criminal. Yeah. One, one interesting kind of sidebar to this, and maybe it's the whole story is the way that you talk about, you know, the administration, it's the, in theory, this, should place on a collision course uh, the Trump administration and the sort of conspiracy-loving uh, base of the Trump electorate, right? I mean, he, maybe not. Maybe maybe these things exist in totally separate, totally separate stratospheres. But you know, if you look, if you if you spend any time on you know conspiracy Reddit, as I am want to do at times, you'll see that this is a you know that they are all in on this, and and Trump is. Uh, you know, as a person is, is been, I mean, all, all the conspiracies are about Obama and Clinton and everything else. Right. I mean, it's, it's a, uh, it'll be interesting to see how, if, if, if the Trump administration does indeed, you know, pursue charges to the degree that it looks like they may, how those two things will sort of, uh, you know, interact. Now, how do they square the circle that Assange obviously helped Trump in the 2016 election rather than helping Clinton and that, the Trump's justice department is now seeking to charge Assange. Mm-hmm. How do they, how do they, how do they make sense of that? Yeah, it'll, it'll be really interesting. And I think that'll probably have a lot to do with what the, um, you know, I mean, how, how the charges are, are, are finally laid out. Yeah. I mean, it's, listen, it's a troubling situation and like, and, and, you know, you said, regardless of what you think of Julian Assange, I mean, but that's the point, right? I mean, all of these, um, I mean, almost every court case of of this potential magnitude, you know, it comes with a caveat like that, regardless of what you think of yeah. this person. It's like Larry Flynn and a hustler back in the day. I mean, this is just this is every single free press trial, I feel. Yeah, I mean, yes, I, I, I and I think that that's what we as a as a uh, as a public and also we as a sort of, you know, journalistic, I mean, like, like a journalism block will be wrestling with at the same time. Right. I mean, it's 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 regardless of what you think of him. But then there's a real case here. And and I think that the most noble thing that the U.S. government could do is to be straightforward with its charges and, and see how it shakes out. You know, I mean, it's not it's 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 going to be it, it's it's there's going to be a lot of, you know, uh, conflicting opinions out there. So I hope that it's I hope that we can all um you know, I hope that I hope that even even those of us, and you know, we can count many of the listeners of this podcast in the, in that number. No, ma- no matter how many of us have a negative opinion of Julian Assange and his and his uh, a- activities and motivations over the past f- ten years, you know, um, you know, no matter what we think about him, we got to pay attention to the bigger issues at play because, you know, it's not this isn't this isn't about one rogue actor. All right, Dave. Before we move on, let's take one more quick break. Hulu's paying some of the league's best players a lot of money 
to do some pretty crazy stuff. Joel changed his nickname from the process to Joel Hulu has live sports Embiid. Damian Lillard got a tattoo that says Hulu has live sports. Clearly, they really want you to know that Hulu has live sports. Get over 60 live and on-demand channels, tons of shows, movies, and exclusive originals with Hulu. Get rid of your cable and make the switch for only $45 a month. Watch your favorite teams and the biggest games all season with no cable required. Watch on the go on all your favorite devices. Live TV plan required. Restrictions apply. Learn more at Hulu.com. Topic number three, the art of sports biography. For our third segment, I thought we'd try something a little different this week. Last week, I interviewed a writer with a new book out who has been tangling with some of the issues we like to talk about on this here podcast. I think you'll like it. Here's my chat with Ron Rappaport. My pal Ron Rappaport wrote sports columns in Chicago and Los Angeles, and he's the author of a fine new book on Cubs Hall of Famer Ernie Banks called Let's Play Two, The Legend of Mr. Cub, The Life of Ernie Banks. Those two things which you try to disentangle within this book. <laughs> well, there are fair, two. There fair were, estimation? Yeah, there are two Ernie. It is a fair estimation. There were two Ernies. There was the one we saw. Hi, how are you? Beautiful day for a ball game. Let's play two. How's your wife? Are you married? You like to do that one with eight-year-old kids, <laughs> but and the thing about it is that he got, he he portrayed it for so long, for many many years that it became a part of who he was, and nobody ever it just he 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 just kept it going, and that kept the real guy underneath, and of course there was a real guy underneath, away. He just never wanted to go there. And so my, my analysis of it is that Ernie played defense by going on offense. People would come up and talk to him, and maybe nervously approaching the great Ernie Banks and come away saying, I talked to my boyhood idol. I talked to the great Ernie Banks. And then they'd pause a minute and say, but all we talked about was me. That was Ernie. So what the book tries to do, The Legend of Mr. Cobb, is what you saw, the life of Ernie Banks, is trying to get beneath that to talk about the real guy who lived a real life with real problems and had four wives. He was estranged from his children uh, uh, who, who went through life. And as, as he grew older, there was a melancholy and loneliness and towards the end, dementia. And, we, and I tried to deal with all of this, with both sides, the happiness and the joy and the great baseball player that he was and the real guy living a real life with real problems. What was the first form this book took back when Ernie was still alive? Originally, I thought I had convinced him to write an autobiography, and it worked out perfectly because I was retiring from the Chicago Sun-Times and moving to California, and Ernie lived at Marina del Rey. I was in the San Fernando Valley, 20 miles away, or as we say out here, right around the corner. <laughs> I would go to his house, and, and we would have serious conversations about some of these things that I was talking to you about, the real Ernie. And we got into it. He told me a lot about growing up in segregated Dallas, very poor. Second of 12 children, living in a shotgun house, out, outhouse in the back, about playing for Buck O'Neill in the Negro Leagues, about going to Chicago, the difficulty he had adjusting to being in a white environment after growing up in a black environment all of his life, playing for those god-awful Cub teams, the poisonous relationship with Leo DeRocher, far worse than anybody, than, than he had ever let on. And then the difficulties of adjusting to life after baseball. We were really doing well. And then he decided he didn't want to do it, which really upset me. He didn't want to write the book anymore. He didn't want to write the book. He said, he said this happened twice. First, we were going to do it. Then he said, no. Then a year later, he called and said, let's do it. And then he said, no. He said, my wife didn't want me to do it. Well, I called his wife uh, after he died. I, I, I unburdened myself of all the frustrations that I had had in an article for Chicago Magazine. And I called Liz and I said, Ernie told me you didn't. No, that that's nonsense. Ernie didn't want. Ernie liked the idea of a book. She said, and there may be something to that. But when he died, I decided that after unburdening myself and being surprised at some of the response, people were right were writing in and facebooking and responding to the article and saying, "I didn't know that about Ernie." Uh, you know, uh, you were friends with Ernie and you discovered these things. And I realized that maybe there was a biography out there waiting to be written. And that's the course that this took. His his sunniness. If people know one thing about Ernie Banks, 
they know that he was Mr. Happy. Let's play too. So you have some really funny examples in here when he's, he does this little vaudeville routine, you know, at the batting cage back in the sixties <laughs> a lot. Nothing could be finer than baseball by airliner. That was his life. And when he was asked to, to pick someone he disliked, it was he big mousy tongue. He had to think about it for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> that was Before one person on earth I don't like. It's Chairman that, Mao. That was Ernie, and it was real, especially on the baseball. Field. It was real. It was he, not a creation of sports writers. No, he loved playing baseball. It was real on the baseball field. He loved playing the game. It was his life to him. He just he just loved everything about it. He had fun playing it. One of my favorite incidents is Jack Hyatt told me this, a former catcher for both the Giants and the Cubs. He said the Giants would come to Wrigley Field, and this would be when both Willie and Ernie, who were about the same age, Willie Mays and Ernie were, were in their mid-30s. Willie was getting a little older. He didn't play 162 anymore. Ernie did. Yeah. <laughs> and and Ernie Willie would take a day off on a hot day in Wrigley Field, one or two time of the three games. Now, first base is very close to the – to the visitor's dugout. Okay. Very close. And Ernie would razz Willie. He'd be standing at first place saying, Willie, why aren't you out here playing? God's sunshine. Come on. You're not too old to play the game. <laughs> and Willie, who was shy by nature, complete opposite, would, would be cowering in the dugout, Hyatt said, going, shh, 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 stop, stop, stop. And Jack Hyatt said it was just priceless to watch. But that was Ernie during a ball game. Joey Amalfitano, who was with the Cubs and as a player, coach, manager for many years and played with and coached Ernie, said that he would yell at him in the middle of a game, Joey, you love being out here, don't you? You love this, don't you? This is the ball game's going on. He did love playing the game. You write in the book that he would hint to sports writers, even in 1969, which is this legendary and then legendarily disastrous Cub season where they're in first place for 155 days and then blow it, lose to the Mets, lose the division of the Mets. Um, that he would hint that he might not be totally happy with what's going on. Maybe not totally happy with Leo DeRoche or maybe not totally happy with something in his life. Was it something that those writers couldn't write, didn't want to write? Why didn't that get into the newspaper back in the 60s? There was no thought of them writing it. George Lankford, who was covering it for the Tribune, who was covering the Cubs for the Tribune in that 1969 season, told me that the story that Ernie would come to him and take him away from the Cubs side of the field, take him over to the visitor's side where nobody connected with the Cubs could hear. In fact, nobody could really hear. But he, they, nobody could see them talking or pay much attention and, and express his frustrations in very elliptical terms. He was never very clear. That damn Leo or they spend too much money think, talking maybe about his wives. It's a different sports writing era, Brian. It not only did Ernie didn't even have to say now this is off the record. They knew George knew Jerry knew these are fine writers mm -hmm. who, who did a good job covering the team. It was a different era of sports writing, and there were certain things and certain ways, and especially if it was Ernie, that you just knew he was using you to vent to talk to somebody. He was approaching you as a friend, as somebody who he knew would not betray his confidence. It, it, it's hard to think of in this era, but that's the way it was. Because it's funny when we think of the NBA right now at this moment in time, the singular story of the NBA is so-and-so player is slightly to very exasperated with his coach, team, GM. Look at what just happened with the Lakers a couple of days right. ago. And he was feeling that to whatever degree, but it wasn't a story and it wasn't considered a story. It wasn't, wasn't. It was off limits. Now, I remember this took place in 1969. It was when the Cubs were riding high. Mm -hmm. You know, they were going good. Ernie was playing well. Uh, he drove in 106 runs that year. That's the most ever by a 38-year-old man, third in the league. He was really playing great. But even then, even when times were, things were good, he wanted to express, it's the closest of all the stories I've heard, I've heard of him expressing unhappiness with baseball at the time. You know, this is the 50th anniversary of the, that year, and we're reading a lot about the Amazing Mets. Amazing is not the adjective they use in Chicago. Describe <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a tragic thing. There were several tragedies in Ernie's career. One was that between 1955 1960, he was the most productive power hitter in baseball. He drove in more runs, hit more home runs than Willie Mays, Henry Aaron, Mickey Mantle, Eddie Matthews, anybody else you got. Which is remarkable. They were all going to multiple World Series. Ernie's Cubs in those years finished 123 games out of first place. 
It's funny, when you, but it's a tragedy. He was the finest player going. He was a great shortstop. Reinvented the position. Nobody had ever heard of a home run hitter playing shortstop and playing it very well. The other great tragedy was 1969, where they were almost there. They were going to get the monkey off their back. And they blew it in the most horrendous way. Um, <laughs> the last two games of the season, after the Mets had eliminated the Cubs, I mean, this is almost too much to bear. The final two meaningless games were the Mets against the Cubs at Wrigley Field. And Ron Svoboda has been on Facebook. He's been Facebooking and some of the comments. And he says, to the title of the book, Let's Play Two, Svoboda says, I heard Ernie say that every game we ever played them, except those last two games of the 1969 <laughs> season. I mean, it was, it was a tragedy. It was just awful that Ernie never really made it. And when it was over, he drove his car to the lakefront and cried. Wow. Which is incredible. It was a hole in his life. You know, he'd go to the— And nobody knew about that until later. No, he didn't really. He tried to pretend, oh, it was just another thing. Ernie's whole life was avoiding controversy, avoiding drama, avoiding conflict. If you understand that about him, you kind of understand him. It started when he was a young boy in Dallas and went through his entire career. But he would then go to Cooperstown. You know, every year the players would go back and he'd look around the room and see that he'd never, he was the only one there who'd never played in a World Series. He was the first— First ballot Hall of Famer never to have played in a World Series. Since been joined by Rod Carew, Ken Griffey Jr., Frank Thomas of the White Sox. Yeah, you have that in the book. You're joking around with Reggie Jackson and feeling ultimately a little uncomfortable being around all these guys in Cooperstown, he even did. though he's as good or better than most of them. He told me he had dreams about hitting three home runs in a World Series. And then he'd go up to Reggie, who had hit three home runs in a World Series. And, Reggie, Reggie, that was me doing it. Reggie would say, oh, Ernie, you were playing for the Cubs. You were never going to get to a World Series. It was so painful he saw a psychiatrist. I want to ask you about the art of writing a sports biography. Sure. Ernie's a big subject. It's important in baseball history. What's the first thing you do when you set out on an assignment like this? I started at the beginning. I went to Dallas where he was born and raised. And Dallas is kind of a— a black hole of Ernie's life. People don't write about it. In Dallas, they hardly knew he was there. They finally put up a statue outside of his old high school last September. I talked. I was able to find five of his high school classmates, which was a real coup, I thought. They were very helpful in explaining the neighborhood and the dynamics, which were fascinating in the book. I thought I'd write a chapter about Dallas. I ended up writing four. Mm -hmm. uh, so I went there. And they helped me a lot. And, and luckily, Ernie, as I said, was the second of 12 children. The first was his sister, Edna, who turned 90 last month and who I love gossipy old ladies. <laughs> she just <laughs> filled it up for me. So when I left Dallas after talking to the classmates, talking to his older brother, older sister and younger brother, Walter, still around, and some Dallas historians and able to try to recreate, talk to the Dallas City archivist. And a man named Darwin Payne who's written a number of books about Dallas. It was then when I left there after about 10 days that I knew I had a book. You know, you start a biography like this and you wonder, are you going to be able to gather the material? Now, remember, I talked to Ernie about a lot of it. And Ernie's comments infused the whole book. I do wish we'd had a little more time, but he gave me a lot. But once I saw how eager Edna and Walter and the five classmates and the historians were to help me resurrect this era, construct this, bring it about. Then I knew I was going to be okay. I was, my concern was that Ernie had been private. Ernie had not wanted, had bowed out of autobiography. My concern was that maybe his friends would, and family would feel that way too. That maybe, no, we're going to respect Ernie's privacy. The contrary was true. I think in the long run, they were as frustrated as I was that he had been able to get away with this sunny, happy, optimistic, cheerful veneer, which was true, but it was only a veneer. It was a mask he wore. It was a character caricature he created for himself. And they were eager to help me uh, get to the bottom of it to the point where they started pointing me to other people who I wasn't aware of. Have you talked to him? He was his next-door neighbor at Trump Tower when he was living out his life. Have you talked to her and her? They were at his last games at Wrigley Field. Have you talked to this one and that one and the other one? These were people whose names I didn't know, but they were very helpful. It became kind of a treasure hunt. It was fun. 
Yeah, I mean, if Ernie had been a mid-century novelist, you'd go back and look at his letters and his publications and things like that. Does that kind of public record exist for a ball player, or is it you interviewing people and looking at old sports pages? Essentially? Well, they're, they're, the interviews were key. They're talk, in the end, they talked to more than 100 people. But I'll tell you what, uh, I, I, I read hundreds and hundreds of newspaper articles and magazine articles and uh, books. But the key to it all was the sporting news. They're all online. You join Sabre, you give them a little bit of money, and you can read everything. Ernie first appears in the sporting news in a one note playing for Kansas City Monarchs of the Negro Leagues, leading the league in hitting. Had some, by the time he, he got to the Cubs, there was something in him every week. You could follow his career in real time. It was fabulous. And you could see the pages. You could see what else was going on. You'd pick up notes that way because right. they'd be writing other things about the Cubs. I spent – there are 2,500 entries for Ernie in the sporting news. Now, some of them are Wheaties ads and Rawlings, Rawlings gloves ads and, and Louisville Slugger ads. But you could follow his career and that of his teammates and the fate of his team. And it was, it was very useful to me. I'm effusively thankful to the sporting news and the notes that I have. But you know what? There was a little bit of sadness in reading this because the sporting news in that format is gone. No, oh, yeah. It's only there digitally. And they're not, they don't have a report on every team every week anymore. But to write about a player from that era, it was extremely helpful. I got a lot. Just a good sense of what his career had been like from reading that and from reading the Chicago papers. Ernie's personal life was, I think, messy would be a very fair adjective. He's married four times. It's been his final days, as you write in this book, in the in the company of a caretaker, essentially a woman who was helping him out, was much younger than him, and helping him out with a lot of his affairs. How do you, as a biographer, navigate that world? Well, Ernie had four wives, and uh, all, of the ma- all the marriages ended disastrously. He was never divorced from Liz, but he, they had restraining orders against each other. I was able to get to the – I found one of his attorneys who, who, who showed me some of the legal documents. He had represented him, let me see, his third divorce. Um, but then I went to the L.A. Hall of Records and found more. Um, it was – you couldn't shy away from this. I mean, it, towards the end, it was his his sons. I talked to both of his twin sons and they told me very frankly – about their about his problems with his wives and about their problems because they, they were devoted to their mother, who was his second wife. So they didn't like the other two that came along. So I tried I, – I had all the information and I wrote it there and it's all in the book. I tried not to get carried away to turn the book on its side and make it about something else. Yes, he had difficult personal life and yes, it's reflected in the book. But I wasn't going to – reprint pages and pages of court records. He said, she said. It's all there. But I didn't want to belabor it. It's all balance, isn't it? And I think this is so funny because we see a lot of sports biographies that make the kind of private sexual, et cetera, part of the subject, a big part of the book. And that's fine. It's a choice. And some subjects, God knows, warrant it more. You don't shy away from anything. You write that Ernie was essentially a kind of kleptomaniac late in his life where he would see something he liked that belonged to somebody else and just kind of take it. Um, you talk about his, his marriages and his difficult relationship with his guilt children. But it's all balance, isn't it? Because you could have made that a giant part of the book, but you make it, I would say, a relatively small part of the book at the end and sort of bring it in when, it, when it's worn. Well, I brought it in where it was worn. And I, as I say, I decided to just tell it and then move on. You know, the whole problem with writing a book like this is pretty elemental. For one thing, how much baseball do you put in? I mean, do you want to put in a lot of baseball or how much, uh, you know, how much of his personal life, how much of Dallas? Well, I decided I would put in a lot of baseball. How much do you want to talk about his teammates? There have been some comments on Amazon that Ernie uh, uh, recedes from the biography that I'm talking too much about Billy Williams and Ken Hobbs and, and about the College of Coaches. And it's a fair comment. It's fair. And I knew I was leaving myself open to it. But I thought this was one chance we were going to have to reconstruct Ernie's life in the important context of the teams he played for and the people he played with. So, yes, I have a whole section about Leo, where he came from, how he started. And then it all culminates in this monumental clash between these two men. I, I feel that you can't know Ernie unless you know the 1969 season, which I have three chapters on, one from the Met Cubs point of view, one from the series that the Mets were playing against the Cubs, 
and then what went wrong. You can't understand it unless you know who Billy Williams and Ferguson Jenkins and Ron Sato and Don Kessinger mm-hmm. are. So it's a fair comment, but I just decided that was the way I wanted to go. And I guess my related question to how much baseball is, how long can a book like this be? Like, what do we think a reader, how much will they tolerate? Because I'm sure you had reams and reams of material. How much will they tolerate on a subject like Ernie? Well, the book turned out to be longer than it was contracted for. I called my publisher and said, it's going to go long. God bless Hachette Books. They were fine. Had a wonderful editor. Editor, Mauro DePreda and Brent Rumble, two great editors. They said, write what you think it needs to be. So the book grew by about a third. And it's some people think it might be too long, but I just feel that if you're a baseball fan, this is what you're going to want to read. And if you're not a baseball fan, well, maybe you can skip the part about the college of coaches or about <laughs> how Ernie reinvented hitting with Frank Aaron by using a light, Hank Aaron by using a lighter bat. Maybe that doesn't appeal to you. But there will be other things in it about trying to describe what Chicago was like and trying to describe what Dallas was like. I have a whole chapter about the etymology of Let's Play 2. I have a whole chapter about his racial attitudes toward race. I want to ask you about Let's Play 2 because that fascinated me. Because he, like a lot of ballplayers, gave about eight different answers. Not only – we can imagine that he would remember, re-remember, misremember the first time he said it, which he did, like a lot of famous sports phrases. What fascinated me, though, is on the one hand, he used it to mean it's a hot day outside. My teammates are dragging. I'm going to be ridiculously optimistic and pump them up. On the other hand, he used it at a different time to say I have a – I'm in a rotten marriage. And let's play, too, because the ballpark is the one place on earth that I get to do what I want to do. And nobody's telling me what I want to do. Now, that is two radically (laughs) different interpretations of the phrase let's play, too. Well, he would have internalized the second one. He would have never said that except in his mumblings to George Langford or Jerry Holtzman. But what was funny in tracing it was that Ernie not only told four or five different stories, but they were specific. It was 19... 67, and I was driving on Lakeshore Drive, and it was a beautiful day, and I thought, let's play too. No, it was 1969. Gave you the date, July, whatever. And I was driving through the inner city, and it was a hot, terrible day, and when I got to the ballpark, I saw my teammates dragging, and I said, let's play too. I think I traced it back farther than that to the, the, the Cubs played a doubleheader against the Houston Colt 45s, 1960, in this terrible old stadium that they played in before the Astrodome came along, and then they became the Astros. And it was so hot, the Cubs were playing a doubleheader. Ernie Fates in the first game, can't play the second game. And Billy Williams, who was playing for the Cubs, and Al Spangler, who was playing for the Colt 45s and later would play for the Cubs, both told me that they were razzing about let's play two, let's play two. You couldn't even play one. So it had to come back before that, beyond that. But what fascinates me about it is this is Ernie's enduring contribution to the American vocabulary. Absolutely. It will outlive us all. Yes. I have a Google alert for it. I got one yesterday. And it's not always in a sports context. Hillary Clinton would use it after supposedly beating <laughs> Donald Trump in the first debate saying, it's great. And as Ernie Banks, you grew up outside of Chicago and Ernie Banks fan. Let's have another debate. Let's play too. I, I got another one today about people using it. And it's always in, always in the immortal words of Ernie Banks, mm-hmm. or as Ernie Banks once said, these three words will outlive every, anything he ever did on the baseball field and any way he's ever remembered. It's a great, it's a great thing, a great contribution to the, to the lexicon. Last thing I want to ask you, when you thought about the first version of this book, the as-told-to version, where you'd get deeper with Ernie, hopefully, than he had ever gotten with other writers before and a little bit more real versus – the version that you wound up writing now after his death. What's the biggest difference, do you think? What's the well, thing uh, you brought to the second version of this Well, book? I think we were able to make it more rounded. I do say that I wish we'd had a little more time, Ernie and me, because what he had told me was so probing and so analytical, so un-Ernie-like, un, you know, pr- uh, in public. The public Ernie kind of went away. I wish we'd had a little more time. But I think this book is deeper just because we have the the observations and the analysis and the stories from the people who who were with him from the day he was born, his sister Edna, till the day he died, his friend and caretaker, Regina Rice. And between her and Tom Bongiorno, I have a TikTok of his last horrible months, days, weeks, days, hours. I mean, we were able to bring that in. Obviously, that was nothing we could have gotten from Ernie. I think this is a more rounded book. Um, and I wonder what Ernie would think of it. I've been thinking about that to myself. I think there he might have said, 
in a few places. I wish I hadn't written that, but I'd like to think that he'd say that this is an honest, true story of his life. Ron Rappaport, let's play to The Legend of Mr. Cub, The Life of Ernie Banks. Thanks for coming in. Great to be with you, Brian. All right, David, back with The Notebook Dump. Uh, 2020 news for you. You saw that Eric Swalwell, 38-year-old congressman from Northern California, (laughs) is running for president. I don't know who this is. Um, But I did enjoy (laughs) Matt Flegenheimer's piece in the New York Times about running for president for fun and profit. Um, Because... He does, this, he does this whole story about how this improves your career. And my first thought when I read the first sentence was, what did these obviously pretty fake presidential candidates say to the reporter when he called up and wanted to talk about how they had clearly run for president, at least partly to, 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 re, to revive or make their careers, right? Well, he gets Newt Gingrich on the phone. And Newt Gingrich is, is totally open about it. He says it gives you a certain stature the rest of your life, kind of like having once been Speaker of the House. They introduce mm-hmm. you and then say, and former presidential candidate. It's not bad. Al Sharpton, whose presidential campaign I had basically forgotten about, was also open about this. He said, it opens doors. I was taken more seriously and what I represented was taken more seriously. He notes he got to host Saturday Night Live uh, because he was running for president, <laughs> something he would not have probably been able to do when he was sort of a more of a local New York civil rights leader. The one guy who did not go along with the... Uh, humor of the piece you'll never guess this one rick santorum (laughs) i was on the national stage before santorum said suggesting that his presidential campaign had little effect on his future prospects i did fox for five years after i left the senate i did books if you're someone who's relatively obscure who's not had a national profile i don't know you can ask them so (laughs) (laughs) a little defensive shall we say um who do who do we think in the 2020 class is the is the uh, I hate to say Rick Santorum I won't put that on anybody who is the Al Sharpton or Newt Gingrich of this group or Ben Carson maybe better who winds up with a bigger higher Mike Huckabee like uh, footprint in media after it's over. Oh man, that's really hard. Are you going to give me? Are you? Yeah. Are you gonna, do you have? Do you, do you have any any ideas here? Well, it's weird because a lot most of the Democrats running have actual jobs, um, right? Or somebody like Beto O'Rourke is kind of like, you know, recently had a job. I, I, I really think Pete Buttigieg is kind of the one, right? And, and you know, when you say his name, he's been, he's been linked with so much uh, sincerity lately. And we got to do, we got to do a whole segment on him next week. He's been linked with so much kind of sincerity and roll up your sleeves, honest to goodness, good government uh, mojo that it's, it's hard to imagine him, you know, being like a MSNBC guest and calling it a day. But I think he has the most gain, right? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of this will kind of like come out in the wash, I guess, is the phrase. But the, but uh, we, we don't, there's some people, I mean, you know, uh, I mean, Julian Castro, obviously, um, you know, he's not pulling super high. And, you know, th- there's there's people like him, other people like him in the race who who have had real careers and have real jobs. And, and, and they could, you could certainly see them going in a more, you know, cable news direction afterwards. I mean, there's the wild card like Andrew Yang out there who's doing the Joe yeah. Rogan podcast, and he could be he he could certainly raise his profile to some degree. I think there's some, and there's also some people like you know you got Cory Booker who who you know may just keep plugging along if he doesn't win, or this might kind of be the capstone of his of his elected you know elected official uh, elected office career, and that and and maybe he'll just take a turn towards you know something more you know pop cultural afterwards. Um, but I think it's really hard to say now. I think, I think looking at the numbers, I mean, it, you know, better O'Rourke is the, you know, is the real, is the real wild card because like we've talked about before. And like you said, he doesn't have a day job. So, um, he's going to be really out there. And if he doesn't get the nomination or the vice presidency, then, or the you know, the vice presidential nomination, I, you know, he could do anything, you know, he could, he could put his band back together and start touring the country for all we know. <laughs> we knew David that Fox was obsessed with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, Media Matters has put a number on it. AOC was mentioned 3,181 times uh, on Fox Business and Fox News uh, in a six-week stretch from February to April. Uh, <laughs> the wow. APs, yeah, I know. Uh, and then Ocasio-Cortez tweets, 
Fox News brought me up 3,000 plus times in six weeks. That's how hard they're fighting against dignified healthcare wages, justice for all, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's pretty amazing. Just, just ama- It's amazing when you quantify it. <laughs> I'm not even sure I thought it was that much. No. Um, two weeks ago, John Harris stepped down as editor of Politico. He'll become a columnist there. Um, Politico's own media newsletter noted in a staff email Tuesday, Harris said that since Politico's beginning, he hoped the publication would one day no longer require daily management from its founders. <laughs> I just want to note, <laughs> this is a mandatory line when you found a publication and then step down from it mm-hmm. is I just, I, I, I'm, I, I'm just so glad that this publication no longer needs me to run it from day to day. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's my greatest. I remember Mike Kinsley saying something like that the day he stepped down from slate. There's like a manual somewhere that someone says you have to type that line. And it's just, I just found that funny. I just think every, every time a founder of a publication steps down my greatest joy. And in fact, my biggest accomplishment is this publication no longer needs my help. Um, for our celebration of pun headlines this week, I was just going to read to you, David, a few good ones from the British papers that I am nose deep in. This is about Tiger Woods. Uh, the main headline in the times of London was just a walking miracle, um, which refers to Tiger's back surgery. Just fine. I mentioned Tiger burning bright again. <laughs> William Blake reference there. Um, for some reason, the use of the singular sport rather than sports always makes me laugh. So another headline was a redemption story that only sport could make so compelling. And then the uh, collage of Tiger shots over the years. But this is my favorite one. Biblical epic rocks Augusta as golfing gods favor woods. And since I'm in London, favor is spelled F-A-V-O-U-R. Biblical <laughs> epic rocks Augusta as golfing gods favor woods. <laughs> that's old time sports writing right there that's fantastic I love it. stuff G- granny rice could have written that column all right david that's the press box he is david shoemaker i'm brian curtis research by chris almeida production by jim cunningham back next week with more lukewarm takes about the media see you then buddy see you later man David, mm-hmm. sucking harder than he's ever sucked. Oh man, that's really hard. Total don't give a fuck mode. You would think that I would just be insane. There's a 1000% chance. <laughs> wow. Wow. It's like Larry Flynn and a hustler back in the day. Right. Yeah, what do you what do you know? I did books. Uh see you later, man. Rest in power.